Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Sarah Santillis is the author of Stranger Care, a memoir of loving what isn't ours. You might find that to be a recognizable name because I have been doing a giveaway for her book in conjunction with Katie Couric Media and Random House for the past month or so, which is now over. Sorry. Anyway, Sarah is the author of Draw Your Weapons, which won the 2018 PEN America Award for Creative Nonfiction, Breaking Up with God, A Church of Her Own, and Taught by America. A graduate of Yale University and Harvard Divinity School, she currently lives in Idaho's Wood River Valley. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me, Zibby. I'm so looking forward to talking with you. I loved Stranger Care, a memoir of mothering what isn't ours. And I feel like now I know you so well, which I know that in <laughs> memoir, you know, you only have a slice of yourself that you share. But just going through all of this with you from, you know, the ship, whatever, the Chevy dealer, whatever it was, where you're upstairs taking the classes. And I mean, like all these little bits and pieces. I don't know why I picked that one random moment out of all the many, but just seeing your whole journey through this thing. Anyway, why don't you, I'm rambling because I'm like so excited, but tell listeners what Stranger Care is about and this whole journey, which became the book. 
Yeah, sure. So I wrote Stranger Care as a love letter to our foster daughter who we picked up from the hospital when she was three days old. I call her Coco in the book. And I wanted to write a book that would mother her when I was no longer allowed to. And it started, I actually started writing it before Coco ever came into our lives. I'm a feminist, but when it came to becoming a mother, I wasn't admitting to myself or to my partner that I really wanted to be a mother, that it was my deepest longing. And by the time I did admit that to him, I discovered that I was married to an environmentalist who didn't want to make another human being. He thought that why would we make a new child when there are so many children in the world who need homes. I mean, he was open to fostering or adopting. And he wants to live in a world where we tend the earth. And I really want to live in a world where we tend each other. So foster care became kind of our common ground. We thought, okay, there's 500,000 children in foster care, over 100,000 need permanent homes, and we can be a safe place for one of those children. So we started the process of becoming certified as foster parents. And the book opens with my own indecision and kind of our struggles in our marriage to figure out how we're going to remake our partnership in order to become, in order to grow our family and what that's going to look like. And then it's, it kind of takes a turn when we get the call for Coco and, and we bring her home. Wow. But it's not just that because you intersperse basically every short chapter with some sort of story from the environment or the Bible even, or all these different sources Mm -hmm. that sort of make your own experience much more global and sort of rooted in the history of motherhood in general. There was one of those passages that I like have not stopped thinking about, about the tree, how the mother tree tends to the tree beside it based on its seedlings versus the other trees in its orbit. But that when those trees that aren't its seedlings are out of its orbit, it'll just take care of whatever tree is close by, which I thought was like, I've never thought of a tree that way ever. I had no idea. Did you know? I mean, that blew my mind, I have to say. I had no idea. I read an article by Suzanne Simard, who has a new book out called Finding the Mother Tree, about this idea. So in in the beginning of the book, I'm really looking to nature to find examples of expanded sense of kinship. Like, how does nature take care of the stranger? or What does family look like in nature? I was trying to think differently about it. I knew that it was going to be a very intimate story, the most personal book I've ever written, but I also wanted it to open to the wider world. And so I interspersed it with examples from nature of of care or family, which I think become kind of a breath or a relief uh, for the reader in some way, but also a reminder that my heartbreak is not the only heartbreak that, you know, our world is, is big and wide and there's beauty in it and terrible things at once. But that mother tree book, I had first read the hidden the Hidden Life of Trees or The Secret Language of Trees. I always get the title mixed up with that bee, the one yeah, yeah, about yeah. bees. Secret, I think it's the secret, life, the secret Life of Bees, right? Isn't it The Secret Life? But it was the one about trees. It was The I Hidden Language of Trees. Okay, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know the tree one. I only know the bee one. <laughs> it's about trees. It's by Peter Volhaben is the author. And he talks about how trees can communicate and remember and how trees grieve and they have friendships with other trees. And I finished the book and I was just blown away, kind of like what you're talking about. Like, oh, the world is different than I thought 
everything is different than I thought. And I have, I live in Idaho in a small mountain town in Idaho. And I had signed up to do trail maintenance on one of these trails that are used for hikers and mountain bikes. And I arrived to do the trail maintenance and they gave me clippers to clip off tree branches <laughs> along the, along the trail. And I was just weeping, being like, these trees are, you know, they're feeling it, they're feeling pain, they're talking to each other. So um, it was a transformative moment for me to read that book and then to read these essays by Suzanne Simard about this idea that trees recognize their own kin and through these root systems. And, and then they also take care of, of strangers, which I thought was really profound and beautiful. I mean, you know, we just think we're the center of the universe as people and it's so not true. Yeah. I feel like I've been reading a lot about trees lately. I just read like yeah. the, the Oak Papers by James Canton. I don't know if you've read that. Oh, I haven't. No, I would like to read that. It's like a tree meditation, if you will. He's a PhD, lives outside of London. Anyway, that was really interesting. And my husband keeps being like, what's with all the trees? Why are you? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just because <laughs> also all the stories, they're not really about trees. It's about life. It's about humanity and and all how we all interact and sort of the beauty of seeing things outside of ourselves. So I don't know. It's been like a theme of the summer reading, I would say. <laughs> it's beautiful. And I think it's a, it points to this ways of what you're talking about, about how humans think of ourselves as the center, but that we have all these stories that we tell ourselves about how the world works. And there's these moments where you're like, oh, it's it's different than what I thought. And it's more beautiful and more profound and more connected. And I think there's there it's like a balm or medicine in some kind of way to uh, to remember that communications happening all around you, families happening all around you. Yeah, so true. And speaking of family, so yes, I would say like, and I listened to it, so I didn't read it. So I don't know if it was exactly half of the book or it seemed like the first half you had not even had, you had not met Coco yet. You had, it was the lead up to that. And as you said, there was a lot of this debate. And what I found really interesting was how you described sort of muffling your own you knew deep down what you wanted, but you couldn't assert yourself. You, you, it would have like rocked the boat too much and it would have, maybe I didn't say that in the right way, but like your husband wanted something totally different. So what do you do in a relationship? And you were like, I've been so amenable up until that point. How could then all of a sudden I'd be like, absolutely not. When like, you'd been like, sure, we'll do this. Sure, we'll do that. And then I'll, you know. so it's like the the precedence you set in the relationship. And then this big decision comes along. I don't know. Why don't you tell more about it? I, I just keep summarizing. But. Well, that was the hardest part to write. I felt like a lot of shame about looking back at the ways that I'd been in my own marriage and the ways I'd subverted my own desires, whether it was for small things like what I wanted to eat for dinner or things to do. You know, I'm, I'm a people pleaser or I want to say I'm a former people pleaser, but I'm still a people pleaser, like a good girl who likes to do what other people want her to do. And it kind of runs counter to my understanding of myself as a strong, decisive person. And I'm married to someone who wants to be married to a strong woman. So it was also a shock to him that I hadn't been saying my own desires. And so it's kind of an interesting question of how, when you've been pretending to be one way, but then you're admitting to yourself that something else is going on, how do you remake your partnership to be more equal? And it was, I, I didn't write that part at first, actually. I, I, was, I didn't want to write about my marriage and I definitely didn't want to write about the fact that I hadn't been saying, naming my own desires. It was more comfortable to blame other people for the situation that I found myself in than to look at the ways that my own behaviors have led to the this like moment that we found ourselves in. So 
that was the hardest part for me to write. Other people think other parts are harder and there's emotional parts, but that part admitting admitting that I had been swallowing my desires was the hardest part. But interestingly, it's the one that so many women readers have responded to. I think it's a pretty common thing that people, a lot of women are trained not to say what they want. And then you find yourself in a situation that you really don't want to be in and end up having to either like explode your partnership or remake it or give ultimatums or do something. And this one about being a mother, I had my own resistance because there's cultural resistance around this thing. I think I write that it's motherhood is framed as both holy work and trap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had absorbed that. I, I was afraid of what it would do to my writing and my life and my time. And I had a partner who didn't, who didn't need to be a parent. He said, I'm fine with it just being the two of us. And then he became more adamant in his desire not to create a new human. As I realized that my deepest longing was to become a mother. And so we had to then straddle this pretty big chasm. The thing is you write about it as if you wanted to, you know, become an astronaut and go to the moon or something, you know, like, <laughs> I'm like it's okay to want to be a mother. I'm like, you're, you know, I'm like, my heart is like going out to you as I'm listening. And I'm like, it's okay to admit this. It's not like some shameful desire to want to be a mother. No. It's like, you know, but there was just so much built up. And of course, if the person in your life feels the opposite, it doesn't really matter how common or not common it is. It's like, that's your sort of ecosystem in which you have to sort it out. But yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's like, I'm like, I really want to drink poison. Exactly. That's what I, want to do, you know? I know. I'm like, <laughs> she wants to be a mom. It's okay. Be a mom. Like, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is okay, wow. but it didn't feel okay. Yeah. I know. I understand. I completely, and yeah. you wrote, you explained it so well. I just, you know, my, I, my heart was kind of going out to you as you wrestled with it. Although I'm sure that would have been the case had you been wrestling with anything. And then of course, as it all goes on, I felt sort of similarly at every step of the way, even by the way, I just read your LitHub article about going to Coco's first birthday. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Well, I hate to like fast forward, but can we talk about that or would you prefer? No, please. Which yeah. sounded just, I mean, the fact that you went and visited after you had to give Coco back to her biological mother and then literally like felt like you were going to die and your whole body that you said you had migraines and bruises and swelling and you just literally couldn't stand it. Tell me, just tell me, maybe tell about the trajectory, what ends up like sort of happening, which isn't a spoiler, I don't think, because that's... No, it's not. At this point, no, I don't think so. So we we wanted to adopt through the foster care system. And so what happens when you are certified as a foster parent is you get these phone calls that there are children, sometimes siblings that are available that need place a safe place to go, sometimes single children. So we would get call after call after call, and you're supposed to keep a list of questions by the phone to determine whether it's the right, you're the right fit for that particular child. And since we wanted to adopt, there were some questions that we had. We wanted to make sure that there was another family available, or we wanted to know how, what the, the biological mother's situation was. And so when we got the call for Coco, we were told that her biological mother was what they called a, quote, poor, poor prognosis. This was her fourth child. And she had a long history of um, not being able to have a safe life for children. And so it was pretty possible that we were going to adopt her. So that was what we went in with. So we picked up this three-day-old baby girl who weighed less than five pounds from the hospital. And our attachment to her was immediate, fierce. You know, I'd been, when I had been wrestling, do I want, I had been asking myself, do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? And then it kind of switched. Do I want to be a parent? And so I I knew that I didn't need to give birth, but I still wasn't sure I could love another person's child 
immediately, but it was immediate and fierce and beautiful and profound for both me and Eric. So we brought this little girl home and with a baby, you know, you're, it's not babysitting. You're up every two hours feeding them. You know, you, you kind of fall madly in love with this little child and I really wanted to keep her. And so part of the book is me wrestling with this longing, this full bodied desire to have Coco be our child and to give her a forever home. And also seeing that there was this other mother, her mother, who also wanted her and who wanted to get her life together so she could get her daughter back. And that was hard to learn how to love her mother as well. I remember the first time I met her, which kind of points to the violence and bureaucracy here. We had brought home this little girl from the hospital and we didn't meet her mother, who I call Evelyn in the book, for two weeks. And we met her at a courtroom after going through metal detectors. And here's this woman who's given birth two weeks before and her body is still holding all the signs of pregnancy. I mean, I think her breasts are still making milk and we're in this courthouse and she asks if she can hold her daughter. And I hand her this tiny baby in this random courtroom hallway and she just holds her and whispers, I love you, 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 like for hours. And I thought, okay, this is, it's almost like reading about trees. Like this doesn't work the way I thought it worked. There's another woman who loves this child. What are, what are we going to do? And so I had to learn how to love Evelyn as much as I loved Coco. So as, as Evelyn, I think my therapist said to me, this child might save her life and you don't need your life saved. You need to stop rooting against her and start rooting for her. And so I, I tried that. It became this practice, kind of love practice. And Evelyn and I really grew to love each other as she got her life back together. And eventually the foster care system determined that it was safe for Coco to return to her. So I had underestimated my what my attachment to Coco would be. And I'd also underestimated what it would feel like to hand a baby, a vulnerable baby back to someone who I didn't think was safe for the baby. I mean, when we did that, she was 10 months old. She can't talk. She's not going to school. She can easily disappear. And the foster care system gives biological parents a lot of support while they're While their children are in foster care, they have access to counseling and job training and drug counseling and financial support and social workers and free childcare and all these different things. But the moment that reunification happens, all of those supports disappear. So that meant that Evelyn was on her own, which meant that Coco was on her own. But in the beginning, we stayed in touch. And the article that you talked about, this is a long way around to get to that essay. She invited me to Coco's first birthday party. She invited Eric and me, but Eric, it was too hard for him to go. So he drove me there. And we had this huge role reversal where I felt like nobody understood my grief over losing my foster daughter. But then I realized that Evelyn did. She lost her daughter to me. And then I lost my daughter to her. And so I showed up at this birthday party and Coco had these cute pink tennis shoes on and her hair and pigtails. And I don't think she recognized me. It had been a couple months, but Evelyn let me hold her the whole time. And I didn't know then that that was the last time that I would see Coco in person. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And you still haven't. Well, now, so she, Evelyn was doing really well until she wasn't doing very well. And I can't talk a lot about what happened, but she ended up relapsing and and going to a different state. And Coco was taken into foster care in a different state. And as soon as Eric and I heard that, we went to go get her. But that state won't place her with us. They've placed her with a different foster family. And so we've been fighting to get her placed back with us, but we are losing. But what we have been allowed to do is Zoom with her every Thursday morning. So actually, after right after we talk, we Zoom. And it's really the most beautiful 30 minutes. We giggle and play games. And, and then the screen goes dark and it's like losing her all over again. Oh my gosh, Sarah, how do you go through this? How do you do? I mean, how do you go? How do you manage the, the pain of this? It's brutal. You know, I, I think it's one of those things where I'm sure you've experienced where life asks you to do something that you don't think you can do. And you only have one choice, which is to do it. <laughs> you know, I feel like the only choice we have is, is to love her and to continue to try to champion her in whatever way we'll be allowed to, you know, I do a lot of therapy. <laughs> I do EMDR, like trauma therapy. I do something called havening, which is really beautiful. I have a lot of supportive family and friends. And what I try to remember is that none of this is about me. It's about her. And it's about these 500 children that are in this system, the foster care system. Like it was difficult for me to navigate as a overeducated white woman with money. And then I think, what is it like to be poor? What is it like to be an addict? What is it like to be a person of color navigating that system? So I try to, I try to decenter my own grief, but it's, it's been, it's been the most beautiful experience of my life and the most terrible. Wow. And of course you wrote about it. So did that help? It did help. I, I don't know for you as, as a writer also, you know, I felt people were like, how did you write about this? It seems so hard to write about. I wrote about it when it was happening. And there was, I found an agency on the page that I didn't have in the foster care system. I felt so much helplessness and despair and just being able to arrange words on the page felt like a kind of agency. Like I could exercise some control, even when those words were, she is gone. You know, I, I, it, gave me a sense of control that I didn't have in any other aspect of that experience. Wow. How was this project different? I mean, I know with all the layers of emotion on top of it and writing through the situation, but this is like your fifth book or something or something I say so glibly. Yeah, no, it's good. I don't know I like how that. many, whatever. <laughs> uh, losing track. 
Yeah. No, I mean, and you've, there's always a personal element to it. And yet they're also different, right? Like breaking up with God and, you know, like the analysis of female religious leaders around the country and all the, the work that you continue to do is so interesting. And there's all this reported stuff and then all this emotional stuff, if you will. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you synthesize all that information and make it into sort of a cohesive narrative and like which part of it, or is it the combination of both? It, like you feel like you need the two sides, the sort of the analytical meeting with the emotional. Mm. That's a really interesting question. I, I write, I don't know how, how you write. I'd love to hear what your writing process is like, but I write in fragments. I write like little bits and the book is in fragments of it, you know, has short, I wanted there to be a lot of white space on the page for space for the reader to breathe and space for the reader to animate the text on her own. And I also like to point to the limits of my own writing that Um, You know, what I write about Evelyn or what I write about Coco, there's always more to them than what I can capture on the page. And I like to point to that by by having these short sections. But I needed the I needed the analytical part. It was like medicine to me. (laughs) You know, I needed kind of to fall in love with the world in my in my grief. I I had gone in the beginning, like I said, to look for examples of kinship and family. A friend read my book and she said, I love how in the beginning you're looking to the natural world for um, examples of kinship and family. And, and by the end, it's the natural world that's taking care of you. It's like, it's your family. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize I did that. But, you know, that's how, that is how it worked. You know, I, I got to be held by the mountains and by the river and by the vultures and hawks and the robins in my yard. And so I needed I needed that sense of expansiveness and that sense of like long, like eternal time or this, the sense of the stars and the moon. I wanted that also to be medicine for Coco. You know, it's my hope that someday she'll read this and she'll know how loved she is and she'll know how many people want, wanted her. And that, you know, I had this sense that if we all come from stardust, if we're all made from the same material, then wherever she finds herself, she, she's home. You know, I, I used to like literally go out and hold her into the moonlight and say, oh, wherever you are, there'll be moonlight. You know, wherever you are, there'll be trees. And so I wanted the book to do that for the reader, to, to do that, to kind of like re-enchant the, the world in some way, even though the material was so difficult. Wow. That's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I'm just like... All right, making my own selfish wish on the stars with my kids. Oh, good, make it. Here I am, like you know. Uh, can I have X, Y, or Z star? Can you work, you can so you work much. for me, please? You know, you do so much to support writers and authors yeah. and books and community. You're you're a powerhouse. Oh, thank you. That's sweet. So I know you got your start with your first book about Teach for America after graduating from Yale, which, by the way, I went to also. So. Oh, yeah. 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 When did you graduate? Like I'm much older than you. I mean, I'm sure I, I am, but so. I graduated in 98. No, I'm, no, I'm older than you. I graduated in 95. No way. Wow. Yeah. Well, you look much better. <laughs> <laughs> See, I had to plug in my ring light. It's older. <laughs> oh my gosh. I thought you were like 10 years younger than no. me. Oh, that's so funny. I was in Davenport. I was in Pearson. I was first in Trumbull and then in Pearson. Oh, interesting. So I was right next to you. I ate a lot of meals in Davenport. I had a big gang of friends that was in Davenport. Oh, awesome. Well, we were yeah. there at the same time then, right? You were yeah. There? Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Wow. Well, so so you so just give me like the two 
minute version of your life story then. So you went to Yale, <laughs> then you went to Teach for America. Like, how did you end up here? I know what, yeah. I, yeah. I'm a weirdo. I'm a real weirdo. So I, I, yeah, I don't know of how career services was when you were at Yale, but when I was there, you had two options, which was like investment banking or the Peace Corps. <laughs> Those were like <laughs> the, two, the two things. It was like way before, I mean, we had computers, but you would go in and there was all these binders. This is what yeah, you could do. Binders. And I ended up applying for Teach for America, which is, I'm not a fan of that program at all. I think it's not a good idea to send inexperienced undergrads basically to um, the schools that need the best teachers. So, but I, I, I ended up doing teacher America and I was sent to Compton, California and I taught bilingual elementary school, first grade, and then second grade. And that experience was like a conversion experience for me. Similarly to reading about trees, I was like, oh, the world works differently than, than I thought. You know, here I am, it's embarrassing, but here I am as this white woman where all the structures are designed to support me um, to feel smart and successful. And I'm in a school that's predominantly for black and brown children. And we didn't have any books. The windows didn't open. There were mice crawling through my classroom. You know, they were being set up to fail and then blamed for that failure. So it was this really deep encounter with structural and systemic racism. I also started going to church at that time. I'd been raised Catholic, but kind of left the church when I went to college and then um, started going to this really beautiful Episcopal church that was like a social justice church in Pasadena called All Saints Pasadena. So I thought that becoming a minister would be the way to combat oppression of all kinds, specifically racism. And so I ended up going to Harvard Divinity School to become a minister, but I stopped going to church <laughs> when I went to divinity school and, and ended up getting a doctorate in theology and realizing that I couldn't make my mind do what the church was asking it to do. And so it became instead a theologian where I studied um, the words people use to talk about God and and the effects of those words, whether they make the world more life-giving or or whether they cause harm. And so I went to divinity school and I fell in love with Eric in graduate school. We kind of moved all around following academic jobs. We've lived in California. We've lived in Portland, Oregon. And then I eventually ended up teaching at an art school in Portland. I taught critical theory and ethics and aesthetics. And I, I'd written my dissertation at Harvard on the torture photographs taken at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. I became really interested in what we're supposed to do when we encounter when we encounter images of other human beings in pain. So that's what I wanted to write my dissertation about. So I wrote about that. So that led me to studying art and working with visual artists. But eventually I realized my biggest dream was to be a writer. And so I ended up leaving my academic job to focus full-time on my creative writing. And Eric and I ended up living in this small mountain town in Idaho. So that's kind of the how I ended up here. Wow. <laughs> story. And yet you're interviewed by Cheryl Strayed for your launch and Anthony Doerr and all these like amazing, amazing authors and have had such success yourself. No, it doesn't matter where you are, especially now, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Zoom is a helpful tool. <laughs> in the mountains, yes. How did you connect with them, by the way? I met Cheryl Strayed right before she became super famous for Wild. She's good friends with my friend Emily Rapp Black, who's an, another author and writer who I love. And I remember she introduced me to Cheryl right when I moved to Portland. And I got this really sweet message back from Cheryl, like, I'm about, my life is about to change. I think she knew she was an Oprah book club selection and I don't have time to make friends, but we kind of kept in touch for about 10 years. And then she ended up, we, there's a Hemingway lived in the town where I live. Um, he lived in Ketchum, Idaho, which is just North of me. 
and he actually died here. And the house where he lived has the community library in Ketchum turned it into a writing retreat. And so Cheryl came out as the Hemingway Distinguished Lecturer, and we we got to know each other. Oh, awesome. She was on this podcast yeah. also about a year ago. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Yeah. She's so generous. I remember taking, I used to take all these writing classes in New York by Sue Shapiro, and she always had all this recommended reading, and she would always have us read essays by Cheryl Strait, and I was like, uh, anyway, and then the book came out, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's that essay writer!" From that. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. yeah, she's wonderful. So, okay, two questions: like, what is coming next for you on the writing front? What is coming next with the child fostering front? And then, advice for aspiring authors. Oh, I love those questions. So I'll answer them in the second one first. Okay. So Eric and I realized through our experience with Coco that we wanted to be forever parents, and so we worked with a a nonprofit adoption agency. And actually a week, two weeks before my book came out, we adopted a baby boy who was born on April 19th, whose name is Griffin. And we're over the moon. He's just over two months old now. And it's an open adoption. So we know his birth mother and her mother and uh, the birth mother's daughter. And it's just, just more family, more family, more family, more family. It's just the most beautiful, profound, gorgeous experience. Open adoption is such a beautiful thing. So we have that which means that I haven't been writing the last two months, <laughs> but uh, I, I might be writing a novel. I've, I've never written a novel. And so I'm experimenting. I'm also doing some writing about creativity and I work a lot. I do one-on-one coaching with writers and I do virtual retreats and writing workshops that I love to do. And I know that you mentor writers and if you ever need support for that, I'd be happy to Thank you. Um, yeah. work with you. And so I, that, that's next for me. And my, my advice for aspiring writers or for writers, write first thing in the morning, if you can, <laughs> that would be my advice. I find that if I write first thing, if I put that first, then I don't resent the rest of my day or write in whatever way works for you. I, Emily Rat Black, she was taking one of my writing workshops and she, she went to her daughter's, like some five-year-old birthday party for her daughter and brought her computer and turned her back to the birthday party and, and, and did her writing then. So I thought, well, maybe you can do writing anywhere. Maybe, maybe it doesn't have to be the perfect setup. You can do it wherever you need. But if you have a, I feel like our stories choose us and we can become the writers that our stories need us to be and that they come to us from the stars or from deep within. And it's our job to kind of honor that and not worry about if it's a good enough idea because they've visited us, you know, there, there are these holy things and it's our job to tend them. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. I love that. (laughs) Wow. I feel like we only scratched the surface. There was so much more in the book to discuss and I'm just I feel so privileged to have gone through this journey with you. And now I'm so, I'm so happy to hear about Griffin and so happy for you. And like, it's such a happy, sad, happy, sad. So with Coco and I'll be rooting for you for that. And yes, that's such a good idea with the fellows. I should really loop you into the program. and Maybe you could give them some advice or something like that. I would be happy to, whatever would be useful to you and them, I would be happy to do that. I'm so grateful for everything that you do to support writers. It's really amazing. You're such a generous generous person. And it's a privilege to get to talk with you. Well, thank you. You too. I do it. I have so much fun. So it's actually totally selfish. <laughs> well, we all benefit from yeah, it. So. Great. How great. about that? <laughs> all right. Well, have a great day, Sarah. Thank you so much thank for you. chatting and thanks for your beautiful book, Stranger Care. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me. Take care. Of course. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.